FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Hi, on behalf of Mayo Clinic Talks, this is Dr. Chet Rehal. My guest today is Dr. Kevin Greeson, a colleague from our Division of Cardiovascular Surgery. Kevin, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Chet. Thank you for having me here. Kevin and I have worked together uh, on our TAVR program for a couple of years now, and it's really been a fantastic and rewarding collaboration. Yes, I think uh, we've learned a tremendous amount, and just the concept of the uh, multidisciplinary heart team to me has been just a profound um, uh, benefit of the uh, uh, of the TAVI program or the TAVR program. As transcutaneous aortic valve rep- replacement now rolls out nationwide to many new centers, I think there are important lessons that the centers uh, who have been involved in the investigative trials can share uh, with the newer centers coming on board. Kevin, what were some of the uh, uh, more profound uh, lessons that you learned being involved in this practice? Um, I think that we've learned that there are some patients who are ideal candidates for transcatheter valve insertion. Um, and there are some patients who we often talk about um, are these t- cohort C patients. They're patients who die with their aortic stenosis, but not from their aortic stenosis. And I think we're developing more of a keen eye to identify those patients and have a frank conversation with them that fixing their aortic valve is probably not going to make them better or live longer. This is a really important point. Uh, there's a lot of aortic stenosis out there, but there's also a lot of frailty and multi-system disease. And the key determinants of prognosis can be really difficult to tease out. So, Kevin, what, what about inoperability? Is there actually such a thing as an inoperable patient, or is it, is it a spectrum? I think it's a spectrum, and we've had this discussion many times, and you rightly point out that it's a moving uh, 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 target. Um, I think um, patients who have the proverbial porcelain aorta, I think, are the one group of patients that no one would argue with uh, being inoperable. And in our practice, those are some of the most uh, enjoyable patients to treat with transcatheter valve insertion. Because as you pointed out, they usually don't come with all the other comorbidities like the bad chronic lung disease or the high creatinines. And these patients can have a profound uh, change in their lifestyle with a successful transcatheter valve insertion. Kevin, what's the learning curve? You know, we wrote a paper on, on the learning curve, and there's been some controversy as to exactly how many cases it takes to really learn how to do a transcutaneous aortic valve replacement. What's your thought on that now? Well, Chet, we've probably evaluated over 2,000 patients here for transcatheter valve insertion, and we've performed almost, I think, about 200 cases. And I have not reached the end of the learning curve yet. Um, I learn something new uh, quite frequently, um, even after 200 cases. Um, from a perspective to be a safe uh, surgeon with transcatheter valve insertion, I think as we showed in our study, you know, around 40 to 50 cases, I think um, enables you to develop a kind of a sense of comfort uh, with these cases. Um, I think uh, beyond that, what we're learning is uh, patient selection. And uh, that, I think, will continue forever. <laughs> So there's a, there are two types of learning curves. One is a technical learning curve that includes not only the cardiologists and surgeons, but also the team that's involved. And the second, as you, as you just said, a learning curve in case selection. And I think the patient selection often is, can be the most important determinant of outcomes. Absolutely. If you do the right operation on the right patient, you're going to have a good outcome. 
So, Kevin, when you're counseling patients between their various options, the transcutaneous option, whether it's transapical or transfemoral versus an open surgical approach, how do you counsel them? How do you take into account the results of the published partner trials? I think at this point, for patients who I feel are inoperable, there's no doubt in my mind that those patients are best served with an attempt at transcatheter valve insertion. So those would be the patients who have an estimated operative mortality of greater than 50% for standard aortic valve replacement. I think once you eliminate that group, a patient becomes a little bit more muddied. Uh, we know from the uh, partner um, high-risk cohort A group that the uh, incidence of stroke, uh, perivalvular leak, and vascular injury uh, rates are higher with transcatheter valve, and that has to be taken into context when counseling patients. Um, when I look at a patient, uh, I, I look at them with a jaundice eye. I think if I can get them safely through an open operation without a major complication, um, I would tend to move that way. But in the end, it's the informed consent that I give the patient that allows them to decide which avenue they want to pursue. Much has been made of the risk of perioperative stroke, but if, you, if one considers from the patient's standpoint, what are they really interested in? And, and ask, if we ask ourselves the question, at one year, what is their likelihood of being alive and free of stroke? Then if you look at the data from the partner trial, it's identical at one year. Is that not true, Kevin? That is, and um, it, it's, it's a tough uh, distinction to make. Um, and I think uh, the way I deal with that is I just have a, f a very good conversation with the patient. I find that older patients oftentimes fear stroke more than they fear death. But not all strokes are massive strokes and not all strokes uh, are um, produce a morbid state. You can have uh, quite a bit of uh, improvement after a neurologic injury. And, and you know, most of the, even though there was an increased risk of neurologic injury with transcatheter valve insertion, not all of those were major strokes. A lot of those were TIAs. Kevin, what about paravalvular regurgitation? Since we don't remove the native aortic valve, it's left in situ, often with large nodular chunks of calcification. Paravalvular leak is very common. What, what, what can be done to improve our deployment technique to minimize the risk of perivalvular regurgitation? Well, Chet, we know from the first uh, partner trials that the incidence of perivalvular uh, regurgitation after transcatheter valve insertion is, you know, 70-80% for all patients. And that was a first-generation valve. And in that study, I don't think we really accurately sized the aortic valve annulus um, as well as we are now. We relied heavily on uh, transesophageal echocardiography. But we've learned that uh, when we were first doing this, that that was just one of a... Uh, one dimension of the uh, aortic valve annulus, which is more of an oval than a circle. And when we measured it with TEE, we were getting the short axis. Uh, now we rely more on 3D transesophageal echocardiography and CT angiography. And I think this is giving us a much more accurate uh, dimension of the aortic valve annulus. And I think what we're going to see is that our aortic or perivalvular aortic regurgitation is going to be markedly diminished as we move forward. In addition, um, you know, this was the first-generation valve, and we, we've had 50 years to perfect open aortic valve replacement. I think it's going to be uh, with future generations of valve that we're going to be able to tackle this problem. And I would say the same applies with neurologic injury. Kevin, how has the advent of the TAVR practice affected your open surgical practice? And let me ask you just one specific question as well, and that is, in the current era, should surgical patients be getting bioprosthetic valves thinking in the future we may be able to do valve and valves on them? 
Chen, I think there's two points to your question, or two answers. One is, I think it's increased our volume of uh, referrals for aortic valve replacement, uh, certainly in the older population. But as to your question about uh, biological valves in the younger population, I think that's a conversation you have to have with the patient. I think it's just as it is important as any other part of the informed consent about biological and mechanical valves. You have to tell patients now that there's this new therapy, and it's uh, approved in Canada and in Europe for patients that have dysfunctional degenerated biological valves could possibly undergo a valve and valve procedure down the road. Now, we don't have any long-term data on those procedures, and I tell patients it's kind of hard for me to sell you a valve today based on a technology that's not available in America yet but hasn't actually been proven to be effective, but it's something they need to hear. And by and large, I think a lot of younger patients are choosing a a biological valve at this stage to avoid Coumadin therapy and knowing that down the road if the valve degenerates, they can get a valve and valve procedure. One more thing about that, though, is we know from just our, our usual practice of patients with, who receive biological valves, up to 30 to 40% of those patients will develop additional medical comorbidities that will require Coumadin therapy as they get older. And in my, I always tell the patients, the worst case scenario I could think of is you developing a condition that would require Coumadin therapy, and then the biological valve wears out in five years. And we've not really done them any favors. Yeah. Kevin, what about antiplatelet and anticoagulant therapy after a a TAVR procedure. What are the current standards? And you mentioned a little bit about many patients having independent indications for warfarin. What, what, uh, What are you recommending now for antiplatelet therapy, given the fact that the stroke risk sort of continues? Right. Well, all of our patients uh, receive aspirin and Plavix. That's our uh, default mechanism. Uh, just like with everything else in medicine, though, everything has to be individualized. Uh, if we have patients that have chronic atrial fibrillation, uh, we will treat those patients with Plavix and Coumadin. Um, and uh, rarely do we go with triple therapy. As you and I have had many discussions recently about this, uh, we shy away from that if at all possible. The other conundrum that, that comes up frequently in these elderly patients with uh, calcific aortic stenosis is coronary artery disease. And we went through quite a learning curve here, and I imagine the newer centers in the U.S. who are beginning to perform TAVR procedures will also have to go through the same learning curve. How should we be managing the concomitant coronary artery disease? I think um, in these patients... Uh, uh, percutaneous intervention on the coronary disease is paramount uh, before uh, transcatheter valve insertion. Uh, Many patients struggle with the rapid ventricular pacing that we employ to place the valve. And if they have untreated coronary disease, I think that that can prove a major problem. Uh, In patients who we're moving ahead with a transfemoral transcatheter valve insertion. We would move ahead with uh, drug-eluting stents and plan for Plavix therapy for a month and then intervene and then intervene on them. In patients who may be an indication for an open operation, we're still using bare metal stents. But I think as we gain more experience, we will move away from those towards more drug-eluting stents. So, Kevin, currently in in your practice, what are all the different options for patients with aortic stenosis? Are there innovative access sites, for example? What what are the different access sites that uh, that you've used? That's a great question, Chet. I think um, if I can just uh, digress for a second, and probably in five to ten years, you'll go to your your cardiologist and your surgeon with aortic stenosis, and we'll look at the patient and we'll decide what's going to be the best way to replace the valve. As far as access sites for transcatheter valve insertion. 
if the artery is big enough, we can access it to put in the transcatheter valve. Now, specifically, uh, most commonly we go through the femoral artery, but we can do a conduit to the iliac artery. We can do a conduit to the abdominal aorta. We can uh, directly puncture the uh, distal ascending uh, aorta, all referred to as a transaortic procedure. We can go through the apex of the heart. We can go through the subclavian artery. So uh, wherever there's an artery that's larger than the sheath, uh, we have a jaundice eye towards moving to that artery uh, for the transcatheter valve procedure. Kevin, that's, that's wonderful. There is a lot of innovation uh, happening now in terms of access site and miniaturization of the equipment that we're actually using. I want to turn, turn our attention now to talk about the learning curve for the team. To correctly do these complex procedures takes a multidisciplinary team, and I'd like you to comment on some of the key uh, elements of that and how, the t how team training should go, and I think this is going to be particularly important for new hospitals. I think the most important uh, uh, factor for a successful procedure is communication, and the communication starts well before the procedure. I think, um, you know, at least uh, with the first-generation partner uh, studies, these patients were all relatively ill patients. They had a SCS risk greater than 10% or an expected operative mortality greater than 50%. And they come with a lot of uh, comorbidities. And I think you have to have a uh, integrated uh, conversation with your referring cardiologist, uh, the anesthesia team, the interventional cardiologist, and the echocardiologist. Um, I think that uh, we've developed that. And uh, we initially limited the number of people on the team so that we could all develop a close working relationship and I think that um, uh, this has uh, fostered a, a great sense of, uh, of uh, collegiality and the communication lines, I think, have been paramount to achieving that. Um, I think for the uh, team, uh, we like to talk about doing a briefing before the procedure, and I think this brings all the important players together so that we can identify any major issues and deal with them accordingly. And follow to uh, complete that, a debriefing, so that we can have lessons learned and we can talk about those before the patient leaves the operating room. One of the key uh, learnings that, that we have had is that everyone in the room needs to understand what the role is and when that's to, to occur. So, for example, the individual staffing the pacemaker or the, whoever's staffing the injector, anesthesia, everyone needs to know the correct sequence of events and how uh, and when they fit into that sequence. And I think if that's done with the briefing, as Kevin has mentioned, then things tend to flow much smoother. Great. Uh, Chet, that's a great point. And we've adopted something from our aviation colleagues with a almost like a, a pre-flight checklist. Uh, and uh, we go through that religiously. And I think it has avoided many uh, complications. And um, even most recently, in our 190th case, we've added a new checklist to our pre-flight checklist. So we're always learning something. It's a living document. It changes. Um, and I think it has really helped us uh, uh, maintain a good quality in these cases. Finally, in terms of roles, we've had often two cardiovascular surgeons, two cardiologists in the room, so you, you can have technically then four pilots. Four pilots can't fly a plane s safely. So one thing that we always do is to clarify who's going to be directing the show for this particular case, who's going to be calling the orders, who is anesthesia, nursing, and the technicians, who are they going to be responding to? And, and that role changes. It could be Kevin one case, it could be me one case, or it could be somebody else in a different case. You want to comment on, the, on that, uh, Kevins? I think that's an important point. Um, you know, the culture of speak up uh, is adhered to, uh, but we defer vest to the team leader for that specific case. And uh, I think all of uh, 
after these 200 cases we've done, after these 2,000 patients that we've evaluated in this multidisciplinary team, we all work well together, and we all realize that the number one goal is the care of the patient. And I've really been impressed how everyone acquiesces to that understanding. Um, and egos are checked at the door, and we're going to go in there, we're going to do the best we can for this patient, and we all realize our roles, and we all take a joy in, uh, in taking care of these patients who, um, I have to say, some of them are the sickest patients I've ever seen undergo an operative procedure. My guest today has been Dr. Kevin Greeson from the Division of Cardiovascular Surgery. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's been really an, an excellent and fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you, Chet. I had a nice time. I hope that uh, for those of you out there who are uh, thinking about embarking upon a, a TAVR program for the first time, that you have found uh, these comments useful to you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks, Visit theheart.org to find out more.